This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 27, a bonus episode, The Kievan Rus. Today, we get to see Eastern Europe as it came to be, from its Slavic and nomadic origins to Yaroslav the Wise's reign in the early 11th century. I hope you enjoy the show. very little about the deepest ancestors of the areas we know today as Ukraine, Western Russia, Belarus, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Eastern Poland and Bulgaria. As early as the five or six hundreds BCE, we begin hearing Greek reports of people who came to be known as Scythians and Sarmatians, folks of proto-Iranian descent who were second to none when it came to horse-based warfare and culture. These horse warriors of the steppes lived off of horse milk, dined on horse meat, and used horse hide for clothing and shelter. In reality, this was a loose smattering of culturally similar tribes and communities between the Volga River in the east to the Dnieper River in the west. This was a land of winding rivers and streams, dense forests and hilly grasslands, And over the centuries, other groups began migrating across this vast expanse. People like the Huns, the Bulgars, and what came to be known generally as the Goths. Both assimilated and ravaged their ways westward into the heart of Europe and into the lore and history of Western civilization. They were the groups who settled modern-day Hungary, the name that derives from its two major settling groups, the Huns, and the Magyars. They weakened and overran the Iberian Peninsula and then south onto the Mediterranean coasts of northern Africa. These were the Vandals, eventually taking ancient Carthage as its capital in modern-day Tunisia. And it would be these groups intermixing with Germanic tribes in the preceding centuries who would force the inevitable collapse of the once mighty Western Roman Empire in the early 450s. And just north of all this, hemmed in by the migrations of the mighty groups of the Asian steppes to its south, the Germanic tribes on its west near the Vistula River in modern-day Poland, and the Finnish groups in the north and east, were a fiercely independent smattering of communities who shared language, customs, and religious beliefs. They were called the Slavs, And it was these people and these lands they inhabited where we focus our attentions today. To no one's surprise, there's little knowledge about the inner workings of these communities, as, like their future conquerors, the Vikings, they had no written culture to speak of, thus leaving no written records of their own to refer to in our studies. 
Again, like the Vikings, we know what we know of the Slavs must come from foreign perspectives. And when you smash two cultures with no written language, it's double the frustration. So it's a good thing we have those intrepid Greeks, Arabs, and later Christian monks to write about them. And I suppose the first thing people noticed about these Slavs was an intensely held belief among nearly all of them that guests, strangers, and visitors were universally welcomed and cared for as if they were family. Not a bad thing to be known for, but as we know, there are people in this world, regardless of the century, who seek nothing but the manipulation of such generosity. You know, for every Abel, there seems to be two Cains, when in reality, and what is certainly the case for the Slavs, it's more like for every Cain, there are five Abels. At least that's my perspective. But let's not feel too terribly sorry for our Slavic friends of the last millennium. It wasn't just songs and sunshine in Smurf Village. Hardly. In order to survive in that world, you had to be hardy, and you had to be tough, much like anywhere else. And, much like everywhere else, resources were scarce, especially in those harsh winters of Poland, Belarus, and Western Russia. They tended to live in small bands of just a dozen families or less, though we certainly see larger communities pop up, but they never reached the levels of population you would see anywhere around the Mediterranean. Due to scarcity, they were fiercely territorial, too. So warfare was, was pretty common, but again, not on any grand scale, with, with gigantic armies like they'd soon see. They tended to avoid battling in open fields due to the lack of large armies. Instead, they lured enemies into thick, dark forests and either attacked outright or employed guerrilla tactics that played well with their knowledge of the forests as well as their prized weapon, the poison-tipped arrow. In close hand-to-hand -hand combat, they were adept, like others in the north, with the axe, though archaeological evidence points to less of a battle-style axe and more of, more of the practical wood-cutting axe, which has a longer shaft and a heavier blade. Not ideal for warfare, but I'm sure anyone struck down by it hesitated to dismiss it. They uniformly worshipped a pantheon of deities, but the one that appears most in the record is Perun. Perun, and stop me if you've heard this one before, led the rest of the gods and goddesses and monsters and demigods as the god of lightning, thunder, rain, snow, well, let's just say the sky in general, as well as warfare, law, male fertility, and oak trees. He was also the god of iris flowers and eagles and horses and metal weapons, too. And this, his main adversary was the god of the underworld, whom he sparred constantly with and fought for the admiration and worship from those lowly Slavs wasting away on earth. Yeah, so not very original, but that was their reality. And I find that understanding a people's gods cracks open quite a bit more about that culture than is first noticed. You know, if a culture's chief deity is, say, the god of the sky, then they must spend an awful lot of time observing and fearing the weather and other such phenomena that could starkly change their fortunes from day to day. But at the end of the day, people like their gods uh, to appear in their image. So that's something else that can tell us an awful lot about them. See, 
Perrin was a muscular, mustachioed, axe-welding stud with a forgiving nature that gave way, sometimes, uh, sometimes too often, to an unbelievably short temper. So draw whatever conclusions you want about all that. It's just no wonder that Swedish traders so seamlessly assimilated into their existing culture. And as these early Swedish Vikings began to settle in with these native Slavic peoples who populated specifically along the Volga River, more and more back home in Sweden, and the large island off the coast of Sweden called Gotland, began hearing of the trade that was not only established there, but also of the vast space and opportunities for expansion. And that steady trickle of northern settlers became a steady flow. And by the 10th century, a people appeared as as being a part of a culture all their own, one that balanced the earliest Slavic principles and way of life with those distinctly, well, Viking. By the 900s, this part of the medieval world was crammed with Slavic tribes with slight variances in customs, though still generally recognizable as this idea of quote-unquote Slav, but with the expansions of trade, not only were the kingdoms in Central Europe becoming more and more stable, and thus more and more confident, but the peoples to the east were also doing the same, many of them benefiting from the increased trade routes that made up the famous Silk Road connecting the mythical lands of China and Southeast Asia with their silks and fragrant woods, with the west, all funneling through two major population centers on their way into Europe, those of Baghdad and Constantinople. These various peoples began jockeying for position to see who could benefit the most, and before they knew it, the region, as vast as it was, became almost clogged with traffic. As we've learned already, the Goths, the Bulgars, and the Huns had already, you know, rampaged their way west four or five centuries before, and and just as the wounds from those migrations healed and became less history and more the stuff of legend, as the pendulum of human history shows us time and time again, it was time for a new crop of opportunists to claim their stake in the re reawakening world of economics and geopolitics. All around these Swedish Slavic people, who came to be called the Rus, sprang a, a myriad of new players in the game to contend with. Besides the Rus, the largest of these groups was the steppe peoples collectively called the Pechenegs. But others from the steppes and, and immense grasslands of modern-day Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, and Georgia were the Volga Bulgars, Karakalpaks, Kasogs, Georgians, Khazars, Armenians, Shirvans, Agusians, Karakhanids, and the Plains people who would soon take the known world by storm. Yes, the infamous Mongols, still just a simple group of nomads, more of a nuisance to China than to the kingdoms of the Middle East and Europe, at least for now. But closer to home for the Rus were the Poles and Hungarians, as well as the Bulgarians and the Alans. These Slavs and Rus more or less enjoyed their place in the middle of such movements by benefiting from their monopoly over the all-important Volga River, at least as far as the Volga Bulgars in the east were. However, there was a point 
when the Rus traders would be forced to pass through Pechenegh territory, and this was certainly a point of contention between the two peoples. And it would be in the midst of this confluence of cultures, warfare spurred by trade, which is all too common in history as we know, it would simmer to a boil. Remember, don't look at this part of the world as an organized chess game like we think of Europe at this time. It wasn't like that at all. When we say Slavs or, or Pechenegs or Volga Bulgars or any of the names I listed earlier, with very few exceptions, there was no real centralized governmental entity to tie them all together. Now, there were most definitely warlords and chieftains who claimed more power and influence than others, but as a whole, these groups were just loose communities tied only by shared customs and language, but they still fought against one another. Going forward, as they were wont to do, though, the Rus would rewrite the rules for that region. And in history, he who rewrites the rules dictates the game. So after decades of Swedish influence and Slav culture and territory, a Rus Viking named Rurik founded the Rurikid dynasty, which would last far past the traditional end to the Middle Ages. The Russian primary chronicle which acts much like the Anglo-Saxon chronicle as to the history of the Russian and Ukrainian people, you know, kind of depends on who you ask, though not written by contemporaries of the events, says the following about the founding of a Rus state. So the Russian primary chronicle is quoted as saying, quote, there was no law among them, but tribe rose against tribe. Discord thus ensued among them, and they began to war one against the other. They said to themselves, Let us seek a prince who may rule over us and judge us according to the law. They accordingly went overseas to the Varangian Russes. These particular Varangians were known as Russes, just as some are called Swedes, and others Normans, English, and Gotlanders, for they were thus named. They said to the people of Rus, Our land is great and rich, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. They thus selected three brothers with their kinsfolk, who took them, who took with them all the Russes and migrated. The oldest brother, Rurik, located himself in Novgorod, the second, Sanias, at Beluziro, and the third, Truvor, in Izborsk. On account of these Varangians, the district of Novgorod became known as the Land of the Rus. The present inhabitants of Novgorod are descended from the Varangian race, but after time they were slaves. End quote. So if that didn't turn your head, I don't know what will. Listen, it certainly reads like a fairy tale, but remember who wrote it. Much of the information I've presented on this podcast so far comes from sources that read very much like the Russian primary chronicle. The Anglo-Saxon chronicle switched allegiances and censored whatever information who, who not put the current ruler in a negative light. The Roman de Roux and the Orderic Vitalis were issued by those in service of Duke William of Normandy. The monks, uh, William of Jumiege and William of Poitiers, wrote tomes vilifying whomever decided to oppose Duke William, too. Emma of Normandy cleared her name and helped prop her husband Canute's esteem up posthumously when she sponsored the encomium Emmae Reginae. The list goes on. 
So just like anyone else, it's good to know the original text and study it, but it's even better to question it when it seems quite a stretch to believe. And, and here, it seems quite a stretch to believe it happened that way. To be honest, I doubt it happened really in that way, but the, the general idea that the Swedish wrested control and began rewriting the rule book is pretty accurate. The accepted founder of the Rus, again named Rurik, settled in Novgorod, which would be the capital for almost a century. He would assume the title of Grand Prince of Novgorod, and Rus territory was referred to as Novgorod in general for a time. On the show so far, we've established a Viking presence in nearly every major market in medieval Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. And don't forget their adventures in North America either, as archaeologists have also recently found a Viking coin as far south as, as Chichen Itza. Yeah, the one in Mexico. Did it get there by trade networks over the centuries, or did a Viking explorer actually make the trek that far? Well, the jury's still out on that one, but knowing what we know about the Vikings, it's safe to say that it's certainly a possibility. Add in the myths and legends of the Maya about tall, white-skinned, red- and yellow-haired men arriving from the ocean, and, well, you've got yourself a lead. But staying true to the mission of this podcast, let's stay in, in and around Europe and the Middle East. We know Scandinavians imported wood from North America, which would be the same draw, yes, along with beaver pelts, that would draw future English and French explorers and traders. We also know they, one way or another, established major presences in Ireland, England, and France. And don't forget Vikings were seen as far south as the Canary Islands, and they certainly led raids along the Bay of Bis Biscay, northern and western Iberia, and inland as far as Cordoba, Cordoba excuse me, and Sevilla in Iberia. And it's my very unofficial contention that the Viking by way of Norman presence right smack in the heart of the ever-important ever Mediterranean, that is to say, uh, the Norman presence in southern Italy and Sicily, might be their most important presence insofar as its centuries-long manipulation of the political, economic, and religious patterns. But a serious contender to that is without a doubt the Rus and their connections with Constantinople. But it was hardly an easy path. I'd like to take a moment to, to just explain the paths they had to travel in order to unlock the riches in Constantinople. As John Haywood writes in his definitive survey of Viking history called Northmen, quote, It was in the East that the Viking combination of violence and commerce was at its most organized, end quote. He presents the case that though Constantinople was the gateway between the East and the West. It was the Abbasid Caliphate, centered in Baghdad, that really connected the two markets. Goods such as slaves, beeswax, honey, and fur, Haywood states, were major luxury items from Northern Europe, while what these Scandinavians received in return were Muslim-crafted silver coins called durhams. He goes on to say, after the 8th century, when they began getting their hands on these coins, quote, The Swedes may have been motivated by commerce, but their expansion in the East was no more peaceful than the Danish and Norwegian expansion in the West, because most of their trade goods came from slave raiding and tribute gathering, 
end quote. As these Rus ventured further south and further east, they overcame the local Slavic population and usurped their villages, and before they knew it, these villages became bloated with new axe-welding Swedes and Finns seeking their own fortunes. These bloated villages burst into towns and cities seemingly overnight, and before anyone knew what was happening, Arab and Greek reports appeared across the Hellenic world and Muslim world of blonde men, and Greek, the word they used was rusioi, in the 9th ninth, ninth and 10th centuries. These men navigated ore-powered, shallow-bottomed, dragon-headed boats, or in Finnish, these, were called, these people were called the ruotsi, perfectly suited for the rivers heading south toward wealth and glory. Though trades certainly existed through offshoots of the Silk Roads northward into the Khanate and Pechenegg and Volga, Bulgar territories, and subsequently northwest into the Scandinavian hands around the Baltic and North Seas, trade really kicked up a few notches when cities such as Novgorod, Rostov, Smolensk, Polotsk, Galicia, Volin, and of course Kiev became power centers for the wealthy elite among the Rus. According to the Russian Primary Chronicle, the Rus Kingdom formally organized itself in the 860s, as we've heard. They used a linguistic cousin of the English word king to name their leader, which they called Knyaz. One of the kinsmen of Rurik, excuse me, one of the kinsmen of Rurik, named Oleg, took over when Rurik died in 879. And Oleg was quite the dreamer, but he most definitely had the Viking spirit and wasn't afraid to go after what he wanted. Up to that point, the Rus mainly used the Volga River as it connected them again with the resource-rich Volga Bulgars. But during Oleg's time, the Khazar Khanate were gaining in power and influence, and the Rus began feeling the pressures of the, toler of the tolerant Khazars. Unfortunately, the Khazars controlled the vast expanse between the Volga River in the east and the Dnieper River in the west, and Oleg had a choice. The Volga or Dnieper? If he chose the Volga River, they would keep access to the Volga Bulgars, sure. But if they chose a new, preferred route straight south of Novgorod, by far their largest trading hub, down the Dnieper River, they would create a new path to Miklagard, which is what they called Constantinople. It's translated as Great City, which gives you a hint as the reverence that the Rus had for Constantinople. Down the Dnieper River, they would also take the eastern Slavic territory and the trading hubs of Kiev and Smolensk, among others. The problem was, well, either way, they'd have to deal with the Khazars, a branch of Turks who adopted Judaism as their primary religion, though signs of tolerance were, were deeply ingrained in their culture. Oleg's hang-up there was the fact that the Eastern Slavs were vassals of the Khazars. But Oleg was a Viking, Rus or otherwise. And as we know very well by now, Vikings usually got what they want. Long story short, Oleg got what he wanted. Not only did he not touch his relationship with the Volga, Volga Bulgars, but he also decided to head south and claim the Eastern Slavic territory along the Dnieper and Don rivers, as Rus territory officially, which, of course, set off the Khazars. But it wasn't just the Khazars he ticked off. 
The Pechenegs also began paying closer attention to these northern barbarians. The Slavs, they knew, were fairly malleable and and stuck to their own areas, but legends of Scandinavian Vikings abounded by the 10th century, and they knew better to leave well enough alone. Well enough was never well enough for Vikings, though. So Oleg, Oleg rode south with a fairly large contingent of mercenaries, and he stormed each village along the way and managed to, like a lightning bolt, capture both Smolensk and Kiev before the Khazars were made awares. A few minor battles and skirmishes over the next few years, and Oleg was, uh, it was firmly in place in Kiev, having moved his capital there. And while we're on the subject of Kiev, Haywood connects this very time period and its events with a major issue today. He says, quote, Russians have traditionally seen the foundation of the Kievan Rus state as marking the origins of the modern Russian state. It therefore remains hard for Russians to accept that the city which they see as the birthplace of their nation is now, as a result of the breakup of the USSR in 1991, the capital of an independent country, Ukraine. End quote. You know, it just goes to show that human history not only flows ever forward, but there's simply no point at which one can justifiably argue that what we see today isn't connected to the past. Which is why I'm doing this podcast in the first place, to figure all this out. You know, during all of this, though, let's, let's go back a thousand years again. During all of this, Oleg was raising Rurik's son, Igor. Which isn't as odd as you'd think. The Normans, the Norse, the Danes, the Swedes, and the Rus all participated in the custom of you know, loaning, more or less, their children to other families. But the fact that Rurik had sent Igor to join Oleg's family, literally on his deathbed, meant that he was in essence seeing to his direct lineage, remaining in power, having been raised by a trusted cousin and leader. Igor was raised in the house of Grand Prince Oleg and saw firsthand the politics of the time, as well as the warfare and terror inflicted upon the Eastern Slavic people. For instance, when Oleg had moved on Kiev, Igor, no doubt, witnessed Kiev's Slavic leaders murdered in ways I'd just rather skip over. Oleg was a very capable leader, and surprisingly, he set up not his own posterity, but Rurik's, whom he'd promised the region two years before. When Igor had reached majority in 912, Oleg didn't step aside, but uh, he did step aside. See, Oleg was, was murdered at about that time. Most accounts say that Oleg was on campaign and died. However, there were a few accounts that I, that I found that said he was murdered. So um, whatever conclusion we can draw from that. So Igor, moving on, Igor would reign for 35 years, which is insanely long for its time and place. And, and it's rumored that a Norman, Norman noblewoman named Efanda was his mother, thus connecting the Rus in the east to the Normans in the West. However, I have my doubts, and this is why. For those playing at home, the math, it doesn't add up. If Igor reached majority in the year 912, how was his mother Norman if Normandy wasn't even, form, wasn't even a formalized duchy until one year before in the year 911? To be fair, his mother could have been a Frankish noblewoman who lived in that area that, that was gifted to Rollo, 
thus making his heritage Norman by 912. That's the only way I, I, I can see how it would work out. It's the only way I think it would work. But regardless, that's the accepted narrative, so that's what we have to go with. Hey, another Norman connection. Shocker. Given such a long reign, it's easy to assume that Igor was, was quite the capable leader. But let's not jump to conclusions quite yet. He conducted two different raids on Arabs living around the Caspian Sea in the years 913 and then again in 944. Now, I hate to pump the brakes on our flow here, but I wouldn't be accurate uh, if I didn't mention the problems with the records concerning Igor. Nothing in the Russian primary chronicle mentions Igor's reign before around 940. And that, my friends, is a serious problem. Did he reign between 912 and 940 or not? Igor's reign isn't seen in too positive a light, mainly due to the failures of the Kievan Rus during the first half of the 10th century. So does this change the way we should view Igor? Not exactly. We do have records of Igor trying twice in the years 941 and 944 to capture Constantinople. Yeah, and not surprisingly, he failed badly. So licking his wounds, he bitterly jacked up the tax rates across Kievan Rus territory, and in 945, while collecting taxes from a local Rus community, he met his end. Tradition holds that Igor got greedy, and he tried to collect payment twice in the same taxation period. Well, there's only one thing worse than being taxed, and that's being taxed twice. So in addition to his colossal failures to take Miklagard, that community being taxed, according to Byzantine author Leo the Dunk, or excuse me, Leo the Deacon, by way of Haywood again, I get this information, quote, this community, quote, bent two trees together, tied Igor's legs to them, and then let them spring apart so that his body was torn in two, end quote. I mean... I've never been this mad before, but I suppose everyone has a point where they'll kill a guy using two trees. You gotta give it up for Viking ingenuity, really. I honestly can't imagine how Igor's son took the news, but either way, I'm sure that news was never too far from his mind when he, Sviatoslav, took the throne of the Kievan Rus years later. But Leo the Deacon's story of Igor's death isn't finished yet. Igor's wife, well, she wasn't happy with these people. When this community sent a messenger to capitalize on the vacancy at the top of the pecking order, the messenger with a, with a marriage proposal from their chief, she buried him alive. Shortly afterward, they sent a group of people, assuming the other guy never made it, I guess, for the same purpose, and, and she burned the group alive. She then attacked that community, and they offered a hefty tribute for peace instead of the marriage proposal, which is pretty safe to assume that that's most likely off the table at this point. But in the end, Olga surprises everyone and finally invites over 5,000 of that community to join her in a funerary celebration dedicated to her late husband. When they were, as Haywood puts it, quote, thoroughly drunk, end quote, Olga had her household warriors slit their throats. All of them. She then showed up at their doorstep, and after they pleaded for peace with valuables galore, she rejected the gifts in lieu of three sparrows and three pigeons from each household. Haywood writes, quote, 
When the birds had been delivered, they were given to her warriors, who tied pieces of sulfur to their wings and set them alight. The terrified birds flew straight back to their nests in Iskorsten, setting the whole town ablaze. Fighting so many fires at once was impossible, so the Drevlian, which is the name of the people, fled the city only to be massacred by the vengeful Rus. End quote. Wow. Hell hath no fury, right? Olga proved more than worthy of the monumentally difficult task of holding the Rus state together until her son, Sviatoslav, reached majority in 963. More on him in a moment. But to Olga's credit, she may have ushered in Eastern Europe's first tax reform when she, upon reflection of her husband's death years earlier, altered the tax collection system throughout the region. Before moving past Olga's reign and taking a look at her son's reign, let's take a look at the dangerous trip these Kievan Rus embarked upon, the very process which legitimized their existence in the area. We've spoken at length about the North Sea, but unfortunately, we haven't had the opportunity, until today, to take a look at the Baltic Sea, which touches the modern nations of Denmark, Germany, Poland, Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And the two with the longest Baltic coastlines are Sweden and Finland. Major ports today aren't too dissimilar to those of a thousand years ago, which include Stockholm and Lulea in Sweden, Gdansk in Poland, Riga in Latvia, Tallinn in Estonia, Helsinki and Vasa in Finland, and finally St. Petersburg in northern Russia. The Baltic is peppered with tiny islands, giving ancient seafarers places to take port in rough weather, which both the North Sea and Baltic Sea are quite familiar with. And there are four large bays or gulfs that were, strate- were as strategic then as they were throughout the 20th century. These were, as a matter of record, the Gulf of Gdansk, shared by Poland and Russia today, the gigantic Gulf of Bothnia, shared by Sweden and Finland in the far north, which might be considered a sea unto itself, it's so big, the Gulf of Riga, shared by Latvia and Estonia, and the large Gulf of Finland, shared by Finland, Russia, and Estonia. Today, when retracing these Swedes-turned-Russes trade routes, we inevitably begin in St. Petersburg, Russia, at the mouth of the Neva River. Now, to be clear, this is one of those moments in the podcast where I, where I warn you that the frustratingly detailed explanation you're about to hear is not meant to confuse or annoy you. Rather, it's solely meant to briefly show you the complexity of the situation. So here's the path that these Rus traders had to navigate to, to get from the Baltic Sea to the Volga-Bolgar people in the city of Bolgar, which capped off one tributary branch of the Silk Road. They would first enter the River Neva from the Gulf of Finland and follow it east until they entered Lake Ladoga, keeping to the southern shoreline until they entered the Svir River, following it northeast until they entered Lake Onega. Following the southern shoreline, they would very quickly enter the narrow Lake Beloya, where today there's a canal called the Volga-Baltic Canal. But a thousand years ago, they had to make sure, lift their boats and their wares, and carry them several miles to the headwaters of the Sheksna River, into Lake Rabinsk, where at its southern point they would meet the mouth of the famed Volga River, 
There you would, you would have arrived ten centuries ago at the Finnish and Slavic town of Beluziro. Haywood reports, quote, the town's wide-ranging trade connections, jewelry and weapons from Scandinavia, combs from Frisia, wine amphorae from Crimea, pottery from Bulgaria, glass from Constantinople, and amber from the Baltic Sea, end quote. Then, as you followed the Volga a hundred or so miles eastward, you eventually arrived at the trading post of Bulgar. Turn around and go back at this point. Rinse and repeat. Now, that wasn't nearly as dangerous as other routes because Slavic towns they encountered were mostly aware of those dragon-headed Viking ships, and by the 10th century, they were, they were pretty much left alone. They weren't hassled too much. But with Kiev being the capital heading from St. Petersburg to Constantinople by way of the Volga River route was just lunacy. I mean, they did it, but it, it wasn't the best route. That route would take you much farther east, and then you'd have to navigate along the shores of the Caspian and the Black Seas, which were littered with hostile groups. A tributary of the Volga branched off near modern-day Volgograd, Russia, where the Volga continued southeast to the Caspian Sea, while the other branched off to the Azov Sea, which is a, a smaller body of water in the Black Sea on the eastern side of the Crimea. Mind you, if you weren't, if you were to beeline straight from St. Petersburg, Russia to Istanbul, Turkey, which of course Istanbul is the name uh, given to Constantinople, today you would travel 1,309 miles. That's a beeline which is, by the way, 2,107 kilometers. And much of the trip would require you to make sure and carry your boats and things for miles. Now, imagine a river system with all of its twists and turns and tributary dead ends. If the Vikings knew one thing, it was time is money, and every day not buying and selling was a day wasted. Finding the fastest route became the priority during Olga's and then Sviatoslav's reigns in the 10th century. A faster way, though no less dangerous, was the Dnieper River Path. The Dnieper is a large river system beginning in Russia near Moscow, traveling south through Belarus and then finally carving Ukraine in half until it empties into the Black Sea, just to the east of the Crimea. Seems simple enough, and since Kiev is located along the Dnieper, it seems like a great option. However, there are points along this path that take the hardiest of men to travel. From the Baltic, traders would follow the Daugava River in modern-day Latvia and Belarus. They'd carry their boats across tens of miles to the Dnieper and cruise down river, stopping off and trading along the way. But as they neared the Black Sea, not only were these merchants approaching some fierce rapids, but they were also in Pechenegg territory. When word got out about this new route where these Scandinavian and Rus traders had to bypass the rapids and then carry their boats for miles and miles before they felt safe enough to finish the journey on river, well, they couldn't let the opportunity go to waste. The Pechenegs lined this land route and raided these Rus parties without mercy. But for those who snuck past the Pechenegs and found their way to the Black Sea, they still had to contend with the Pechenegs who lined the shores of the Black Sea waiting on that unsuspecting Rus group to make landfall for a night. Should the group, and this is after all of this, should the group arrive in Constantinople, 
they had to hope they were allowed in. Igor's efforts to capture the great city in the early 940s certainly bruised relationships, or excuse me, the relationship between the two groups, but a treaty in 945, just before Igor, Igor died, seemed to patch things up pretty well for a time. And when these Rus were finished peddling their wares and buying the luxury items of the Far East in the great city, well, they had that entire journey to take again, but this time they were rowing against the flow of the mighty Dnieper. There's no question that the Rus were an incredibly hardy bunch. Now that we have an idea of the dangers of establishing a trading empire in that region, the fact that they did just that should ratchet up the respect level we have for the Rus, regardless of folks uh, leading like Igor. For any group in any time period, it's always far less the leader who makes the positive change in a community and uniformly the people who do. Great leaders exist to spur change, but despite very rare exceptions like William the Conqueror, it's just the regular individual with a drive to succeed and prosper is who creates a prosperous society. It says a lot about a people who are able to carve out a little piece of this prosperity in such a hostile world. So by the mid-900s, Kievan Rus' territory was well-managed by Olga, and her son Sviatoslav was ready to take control. Sviatoslav became known as Sviatoslav the Brave for his many victories against the Poles to his west, the Finns to his north, and the Khazars and Pechenegs to his south. But it was, it was mainly his consolidation of power in the west that he was known as a good ruler. Around the turn of the millennium, the vast Slavic-Polish communities that existed as a, as a wild buffer zone between the Kievan Rus and the Holy Roman Empire were starting to coalesce into a single entity under the banners of a Polish leader named Mieszko I. It was Mieszko who, who's credited as the founder of an organized Polish state when he not, not only converted to Christianity, but also accepted vassalage under the Holy Roman Emperor. Mieszko was no longer a warlord in the wildernesses of Central Europe. He was now a full-fledged duke in Europe's largest and most influential empire. And Duke Mieszko started making trouble out east. Sviatoslav's responses dealt a blow to Poland's plans for expansion, but a clear border was coming together during the late 900s to the Rus' western lands. In addition, Sviatoslav led armies, the largest the region had seen in centuries, southward to take on the Khazars. And once the Khazars retreated a bit, he turned his sights on the Bulgars of the northern Balkans. He reigned only a decade, but he left his three sons the largest kingdom in all of Europe by land at the time. And he even moved the capital to a city on the Danube River, but one of his sons soon moved it back to Kiev. When he died in 972 while on campaign, he hadn't divvied up his spoils quite yet, which resulted in that age-old story of family feuding that never really ends well. His sons Yaropolk, Oleg and Vladimir all claimed cities within the region. Reasonable people would assume that this is well enough, but, well, we know how the Rus feel about well enough. Vladimir was no saint, though. Well, not yet, anyway. Because he gathered a force of fierce Swedish Vikings and stormed Novgorod, taking it by force. 
and within two years Vladimir had more or less ruled over the entire stretch of Ruslands, from the Baltic to the Caspian, killing Yaropolk, his other, only, real serious contender to the crown. With Kievan Rus under his authority, it was time to finalize his borders and establish the kingdom in his name. Not his brother's, not his father's, his. He began ordering raids into Polish lands, not as a means of acquiring more land or subjects, rather they were missions to keep those on the western borders unsettled and cowed, while amassing slaves, which were, as the podcast has stated before, a tragic reality in medieval economics, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And just in case this fact was never connected before, the very word slave in English derives from the practice of raiding the vast Slavic lands of north-central and eastern Europe. As Slavs were so decentralized during the Middle Ages that Varangians, the Swedish Vikings, Byzantines, and Arabs all saw them as easy pickings, so to speak. This massive expanse was veined with innumerable rivers of all sizes, as we've talked about, which made transportation in, through, and out of it extremely convenient, though not easy, mind you. With his lands firmly held, Vladimir sought an expansion of the area's dominant religions. See, this was a period of significant religious evolution among the Rus, Poles, and Slavs, and their ruler noticed such changes. Being strongly pagan in his beliefs, he erected monuments and places of worship for his patron god, Perun, an incarnation of the Norse gods, Thor and Odin, with Slavic influences, as we've talked about. But other gods were also celebrated in these places as well, as a way to endear himself to his new subjects. Slavic gods, Norse gods, Finnish gods, and even divinities from as far away as modern-day Iran were celebrated under Vladimir's umbrella, but there was a peculiar religion creeping its way from the west and south that sat well, en- that sat well enough with the people, but not so much with their prince. This quote-unquote desert cult essentially, was known to be the official state religion of the courts of the once great slum of Rome and the juggernaut city of Miklagard to the south. And it would be wise of Vladimir not to overlook this strange new belief with its strange new customs and strange new rules. In fact, to Vladimir, it was laughable, as it stated a man could only take one bride. I know, right? Vladimir had over 800 of them. But Vladimir also had grand ambitions. Grand ambitions in the Middle Ages required outside influence and support and agreements. When you get down to it, and this strange little desert cult seemed to be spreading rapidly in the very realms Vladimir would need support from. But he took a long look at his options first. He would remain pagan. But if he publicly accepted one of the major religions of the powerful and influential potential allies around him then he would be further in their good graces. It's an uncomfortable reality for many today to think of religion as nothing more than a chess piece to be played at a specific time and in specific circumstances in order to achieve specific outcomes. But in the Middle Ages, the fact is, it just was. The reality was that you were far more likely to be allied with a kingdom or city-state or empire if you shared a base set of beliefs than you would with one you did not. Vladimir was nothing if not politically acute in this regard, and as the story goes, he would send off emissaries to visit the four major religions at the time, 
besides his own Scandinavian beliefs and those other belief systems labeled pagan throughout the Slavic and Polish lands. Judaism was appealing, as it was at the heart of all the rest, but he knew the Rus would scoff at the dietary restrictions inherent in their traditions. But more importantly to him was the fact that Judaism had, had lost its holy city of Jerusalem, which was a very clear exclamation point to Vladimir that their God had abandoned them. Islam was also appealing, especially considering it seemed to harness the power of belief in both peace and war. But it's said that Vladimir laughed at the idea of not having any pork or alcohol. Ever. It's said he proclaimed that, quote, drinking is the joy of all the Rus, end quote. The Rus people, again, descendants of the largely Swedish Viking stock, were as rough and hardy as they came in those days. Muslim travelers sent reports back to Baghdad and Constantinople and Alexandria describing them in detail, though, remember, everything was seen through the lens of the culture and faith of the viewer. Regardless, Ahmed ibn Rusta Isfahani, a Persian mapmaker and journeyman in the 900s, visited, Ki- visited the Kievan Rus as far north as Novgorod and saw them in a more or less positive light, saying, quote, they carry clean clothes, and the men adorn themselves with bracelets and gold. They treat their slaves well, and they carry exquisite clothes because they put great effort in trade. They have many towns. They have a most friendly attitude toward foreigners and strangers who seek refuge. End quote. Ibn Rusta wasn't blind to the darker parts of their culture, though. He was acutely aware of the fierce independence of the human soul that was cultivated from birth there. He recounts a scene of a man who's been gifted a son by his wife, walking in shortly after the baby was born. So the man walked in, threw down a sword near the newborn, and said these words, quote, I shall not leave you with any property. You have only what you can provide with this weapon. End quote. In one of Ibn Rusta's rawest accounts of the Rus, he describes the distrust that courses through their veins. Quote, they never go off alone to relieve themselves, but always with three companions to guard them, sword in hand, for they have little trust in one another. Treachery is endemic, and even a poor man can be envied by a comrade who will not hesitate to kill him and rob him. End quote. So back to the point of which major faith Vladimir would accept, if not Judaism, if not Islam, well, that leaves Christianity. And of course, things aren't as simple as just Christianity. No, Christianity was already more or less split between the Roman and Greek flavors, respectively called the Latin Rite and Eastern Rite churches. It came down to geography, honestly, not much more. Straight down the Dnieper River was the glorious city they called Miklagard, or as everyone else knew it, again, Constantinople. His emissaries reported very little extravagance and shows of culture and power in the slums of central Italy or the churches across Germany and France, though its bishops in Rome still claimed preeminent authority over all of Christendom. But Constantinople... It was nothing short of awe-inspiring and breathtaking. His emissaries witnessed services in the magnificent Hagia Sophia, forcing them to fall short of words accurate enough to convey its splendor, settling on this, quote, 
we no longer knew whether we were in heaven or on earth, nor such beauty, and we know not how to tell of it. End quote. Now stick with me on this because it's some pretty crucial backstory to our overall, uh, overall narrative here. As we know, Constantinople was no stranger to the Kievan Rus, or as they referred to them, Varangians. They had traded with them for a century or more connecting the Baltic and North Seas to the Middle East markets and beyond, but these strange Varangians also had also become very well known for their ferocious warfare, many belonging to one of the military orders of the Scandinavian Vikings outlined in this podcast's first couple episodes, such as berserkers, for instance. But it wasn't until Vladimir began looking for allies in the mid to late 900s that he would make arguably the most lasting impact on the Rus people. Emperor Basil II, the Bulgar slayer for those playing along at home, entered into negotiations with Grand Prince Vladimir of the Kievan Rus in 988, around the time Olaf Tryggvason vacated Rus territory and headed back north. In exchange for Vladimir's strategic commercial, and military alliance, Basil II would accept the Grand Prince's offer to marry the Emperor's sister, Anna. It's said that Basil agreed, but Anna adamantly refused, stating two reasons. One, the guy had over 800 wives already. And two, he was still pagan. The negotiations continued until Vladimir agreed to be baptized into the Eastern Rite Church. And to sweeten the deal, Vladimir also sent over 6,000 of his highest trained warriors to serve the emperor. With the Varangian reputation already established within the Byzantine ranks, Basil II declared all Varangians to enter into his own personal retinue, henceforth called the Varangian Guard. Ever the comedian Vladimir married Anna, but he still wasn't quite sure if Christianity was the right move for his soul, so... He had temples and places of prayer, and, and uh, they were all built in Kiev, not just for the purposes of attracting trade from people of all faiths, but, well, also for him to worship. Though there is some evidence to the story that he returned to Kiev and destroyed all pagan places of worship and built Christian churches instead. It just kind of depends on what record you're on. But I can't help but be drawn to the story, whether true or not that thereafter Vladimir built Jewish temples, Christian churches, and Muslim mosques in, in the area. According to Ibn Rusta, Vladimir, quote, prayed on Fridays with the Muslims, Saturdays with the Jews, and Christians on Sundays, end quote. Vladimir is quoted by Ibn Rusta with his justification of such practices, saying, quote, since each religion claims that it is the one true religion and that the others are invalid, I've decided to hedge my bets. End quote. Everyone loves a comedian. And Vladimir left his mortal coil with just one last joke. Sons. When Vladimir died in 1015, remember, the Cordoba Caliphate in Iberia was collapsing. Roger of Tosni began creating his legend as the More Eater. Raoul of Tosni, his father, was accompanying other Normans into Apulia, and Canute had become king of England. And it was this same year, 1015, that Vladimir's son, Sviatopolk, 
murdered three of his brothers for power in Kiev. Yaroslav was in Novgorod and was well versed in his family's history, so he very quickly gathered Swedish mercenaries and marched against Sviatopolk. In 1019, Yaroslav entered Kiev as Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus. He ushered in a golden age of sorts for the Rus. From 1019 to 1045, Yaroslav would fundamentally change the course of Eastern European history, beginning with the Rus's first codification of its laws, called the Ruskaya Pravda. He was also the first Rus leader who was Christian, like really Christian. And let's not kid ourselves here, Vladimir the Great again, saint or not, which he was, somehow, was never really Christian. Churches received funding and support from Yaroslav, foreign relations were solidified, and connections through treaty and marriage were achieved. By all accounts, Yaroslav was successful in his cultural reforms, military engagements, and foreign policy matters. I'm being a little cryptic here for a reason. We're going to see Yaroslav again, because by the time Harold Sigurdsson's story starts, Yaroslav is in his earliest years of his reign and hasn't done many of the things he's known for yet. So we'll allow the story of Yaroslav itself to roll out as we go. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, not only introducing the Kievan Rus, but also the cultural and political climate of Eastern Europe around the turn of the millennium. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I would love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, and please consider supporting the show on Patreon. Also, please remember, this is our final bonus episode offered for free. All future bonus episodes will be available on Patreon. So if you find this information worth your time and you want to hear more, please consider becoming a patron of the show. On the next episode, we will see the confluence of Norwegian history as one of its most famous figures is forced into exile in Kiev among the Rus. We will begin our short miniseries covering the first half of Harald Sigurdsson's story, but his story really begins with his half-brother, Olaf II of Norway. I can't wait to tell you about it.